It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. Uh, This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Have a great friend of the pod, and I I, I don't just mean John Padoritz, a friend of the podcast. Uh, here today, and uh, he was supposed to be on last week, but I had a huge scheduling screw up, and he graciously agreed to kick it to the next week. Um, back when I was at NR, I'd always call him National Review's movie reviewer who had a side gig at the New York Times, uh, but now I can do it the other way around. Uh, New York Times columnist Ross Douthit and uh, National Review movie reviewer. Uh, great to have you back. It's great. It's great to be back. And the one person listening to this podcast, I think, you know, is <laughs> is uh, is going to they're in for a treat. Yeah. Hi, Mrs. Douthit. Uh, <laughs> not, um, no chance of that, Jonas. <laughs> well, I was thinking maybe your wife. All right. So uh, we again, we had not planned on doing this as a Iowa caucus postmortem thing because we were supposed to talk last week and that didn't happen. But now this is the morning after. As it were, uh, proverbially, Jason, Jason Robards is uh, living off puddle water in 1980s <laughs> nuclear torn Iowa. Um, what's he uh, make with the punditry? Go now. Um, Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee for president, I think, in in 2024, Jonah. I know it's a sort of outlandish to think that a reality television star and, um, you know, celebrity entrepreneur could possibly win a Republican primary. Um, he's been divorced a lot, he's got some sex scandals, and yet somehow here we are. Yeah, it was pretty It was pretty boring, I would say. You know, there was sort of the mild interest of figuring out if, um, figuring out if Ron DeSantis would defeat Nikki Haley by two percentage points or Nikki Haley would defeat Ron DeSantis by two percentage points, but uh, the polls were correct. Trump won easily. I don't really see a path to beating him. Um, and it's, I, you know, I, I mean, the, the punditry is sort of limited here, right? Yeah, no, I, I hear you, but we have to cover it. Right. Well, know? I think I think the you know, the the thing I, I as a good as a good pundit, I had to write a take last night. Right. And, you know, the take. So one one take has been that Trump's indictments turned this race into a foregone conclusion uh, that there was you know, a real chance that someone, probably Ron DeSantis, could have given him a race before he was indicted. And you can see in the polls, the kind of rally effect just sort of took all of the air out of rival non-Trump campaigns, um, in which case this race has been boring for a long time. I think there's truth to that. I said in the column, though, that, you know, if you look at the results 
um, Trump is basically running as a kind of quasi incumbent. Um, and he still only won 51% of the vote. Haley and DeSantis combined for, you know, 42% of the vote. If there had been one candidate who could win that 40% of the vote, I think Trump would still be on a path to the nomination, but we would have kind of an interesting race ahead of us. So even with the indictments had basically had DeSantis been a stronger candidate and prevented Haley's campaign from taking off or had there been no, you know, intense rush to Haley by um, a certain group of donors and supporters, then maybe there would have been a more interesting race, um, e- again, even with the indictments. So that was my that was my rank punditry last night. But but either way, I don't know. I mean, I'm curious if you think um, there's any chance of a sort of New Hampshire surprise changing the complexion of this race. I, I don't. But what, what do you think? Well, complexion is a funny word. It doesn't <laughs> quite imply trajectory. <laughs> um, and so I mean, a new New Hampshire could give us something to write about, right? For yes. <laughs> for the several weeks before um, South Carolina, so that that could happen. Yeah, I mean, you can you can kind of easily see a John McCain kind of replay, right? McCain has had a big win in in New Hampshire, and then things get really ugly in South Carolina, and uh, the winner of Iowa goes on to win, right? And like that, I think is the most likely. Not the most likely. It's the most likely interesting scenario, and it's not an unlikely scenario in its own right. And uh, and it would be very sad to see Nikki crash and burn in her home state, but I think she would. Um, maybe not by the margins we see now. That said, look, I, I agree with you. I've been saying for a long time that the way to look at this is that we're going to have a race between two weak incumbents. And the funny thing about incumbents when they... When incumbents run it doesn't make a lot of sense to talk about lanes or conventional constituencies because there are people who come from different constituencies who just support the incumbent because they're Republicans, right? Or they're, they're party loyalists or whatever. And I think that's a more fruitful way of looking at trying to look at this data is that you don't get a real clean sense of sure rural non-college educated MAGA voters that if this was Trump's first time running for whatever reason, like, or if Trump wasn't running, that's who DeSantis would be getting a lot of maybe and that kind of stuff. That's the MAGA lane. But I think it's Trump crowds out all that stuff and he's running as a very weak incumbent. I thought you were right in your column about this. And, um, and it does set up a real question of how he can win if you think about the way previous primary challenges have hurt incumbent presidents, the idea that you're going to get all of these people to come back together, plus moderates, independents, you know, all that kind of stuff seems unlikely. And then, of course, you know, this is the problem. This is why our job sucks these days. It's very hard to see how Trump wins, right? <laughs> pity, pity, pity the pundits. That's right. It's very, very hard to see how Trump wins, but it's really easy to see how Biden loses. Yep. You just have to look at the poll that literally the the I think it was CBS, right, that came out two days ago that had, you know, it had DeSantis, Haley and Trump 
all doing about the same against Biden, beating him by three points. And I, I think Haley might have it might have been four or five for Haley. Right. So Haley, had I think this, Haley was outside the margin of error, outside the case. margin of error. Right. So that's the Haley. The case for Haley is I'll win outside the margin of error. And but that that also has been, I think, not as important as the indictments, but an important part of this story. Trump looked at his weakest immediately after 2022, when the sort of, you know, all of the Trumpiest candidates went down to defeat. Republican Party massively underperformed in spite of winning the House. And the whole Biden strategy of, you know, a noun and a verb in January 6th worked my, more to, to my own surprise. Like how I was surprised at how well it worked. And it, that that seemed like that seemed to sort of shake some something loose in the Republican psyche. Right. And create this sense of like, oh, wait, maybe, you know, notwithstanding 2016, Donald Trump is not the world's biggest winner after all. Right. But having then Biden slump in the polls so persistently over the last year and a half, it's just it's just taken away what was briefly, you know, for DeSantis, especially, but then has sort of become for Haley, this electability argument. Right. Like, I, I do think it would make a difference if we were looking at polls that showed DeSantis or Haley beating Biden by six and Trump losing to Biden. You'd have headlines. Poll shows Biden, you know, Biden beats Trump. That, you know, would that be enough to dislodge Trump? Maybe not. But it would change the complexion of the race a little bit. And if when but having the polls show Trump beating Biden, you know, it just makes, again, not just the core MAGA vote, but also the sort of regular Republicans who don't pay a lot of attention to politics and sort of decided they like Trump by the end. It makes them think, yeah, well, you know, we can do this. We'll just do it again. It'll work. And it might. It might. No, I agree. I, I think the electability argument was the best possible argument for both DeSantis and Haley when it looked like a good argument, but it doesn't look like a good argument anymore. Right. And um, although DeSantis his whole campaign, I, I think the postmortems on his campaign are going to be kind of fascinating. Nikki's postmortems, assuming there are some, it's going to be, here's why we chose these words to say he's a, a chaos follows him for good or for ill. And here's what a focus group said. And it'll be pretty straightforward and understandable. But the very online nature of DeSantis's early rollout, including the, the launch on Twitter, that the the theory of the case was that I think in some ways that they thought Twitter was real life and they thought that they were going to run a post-Trump race while Trump wasn't in a post-Trump moment yet. You know, and that's those two things are very difficult. Yeah, I mean, I just think there was a lot of a lot of deep confusion in the DeSantis campaign about what exactly they were doing. Right. So they had that rollout and that rollout seemed to be. You know, it seemed to be signaling that that DeSantis is the guy who will bring in sort of basically a lot of people like Elon Musk, who were sort of centrist liberals who don't like wokeness and don't like the left. Right. That that was sort of a vision of DeSantis as a kind of outreach candidate to, you know, what you might call the sort of neo-neoconservatives, the kind of people who read like Barry Weiss's Free Press a lot and, you know, think think that the um, think that, you know, we're rooting against Harvard's president and that, that kind of thing. Right. Um, 
but who aren't, you know, conventional Republican voters. So that's like, you know, that's a that's a kind of interesting pitch for who DeSantis is and would be as disastrous as the actual Twitter rollout was. Um, But then DeSantis didn't actually do anything on Twitter. Right. Like the whole thing with Trump in 2016 was that he was he was a he didn't just have Twitter frogs and, you know, and 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 yeah, basically (laughs) people on Twitter with 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 frogs um, touting him and boosting him and so on. He was a Twitter personality himself. He was like the center of the social media storm. I mean, DeSantis has never struck me as the right guy to sort of do that and be that. But there was no attempt to actually put DeSantis, like make him a character on social media. Nothing like that ever happened. And then there was this kind of pivot to a Ted Cruz, Iowa strategy, which is a completely different kind of strategy from an Elon Musk strategy, right? It's saying like, I'm the most socially conservative candidate in the race. Um, you know, you can't trust Trump because he's not, you know, he's not a upright, decent guy. And, um, I, you can trust me because I'm a, you know, a family man and a true blue conservative. And this, I'm sure, you know, this connects to having Jeff Rowe, uh, who ran Ted Cruz's operation as sort of one of your gurus, which again, I, I thought that was a little bit mystifying. Um, he, like we watched the Ted Cruz campaign. It did not succeed, right? It's like a model for how to get Trump one on one and the and fall short, <laughs> right? Um, so, I mean, I could go on, but those were sort of there was you know just from the start there was sort of this perplexing sense of like, well, what what are we actually doing? What are we you know how are we how are we actually selling DeSantis? Um, that again interacted with the fact that DeSantis is as people pointed out from the start not an especially charismatic figure. Um, someone, in a way, well-suited to run a kind of front-runner's campaign, not that well-suited to run a sort of underdog, enthusiasm-driven campaign, which he has failed to create. I'm curious, though, uh, Can you, you mentioned before that, like, the... Um, I thought your point about sort of these, these, like, ideological categories or lanes not making that much sense... I think that's sort of true for voters. What's interesting is that it, it's not really true in our profession, right? Like there's a very clear DeSantis-Haley divide among not just like Twitter influencers, but among right-of-center writers and pundits and intellectuals, right? Like it, it is very clear that, um, you know, Haley was more the candidate of, you know, the dispatch, the bulwark, the American Enterprise Institute, these sort of, you know, those kind of places and people and publications. And DeSantis was more the candidate of people who were sort of trying to build some kind of populist intellectual infrastructure um, under Trump. But then if you watch their debate where they, you know, just tore into each other, if you just watch that on issues, except for Ukraine, you wouldn't have really been able to say like, oh, clearly DeSantis stands for, you know, national conservative populism and Haley stands for a return to, you know, George W. Bush or Mitt Romney. Right. That, that there was just a sort of big gulf between the the kind of pundit wars over their candidacies and how the actual politics ended up, I thought. 
Um, I don't know. I was just curious what you thought about that. Yeah, I was going to get to some of those questions about that because uh, I have I have opinions. I I, I, look, I I think you're right as at, at a level of broad generalization. I don't know was the bulwark in favor of Nikki Haley. I I, I... well, no. I mean, that's that's no the <laughs> the bulwark. The bulwark was very conflicted about <laughs> about supporting Nikki Haley because they thought she was you know too soft on Trump. Right. So the the bulwark like the bulwark was like Chris Christie. Yeah, I, I'm not trying to get into a tongue war with the bulwark thing, but I, I, the bulwark ever since they sort of bought into this, should we burn down the GOP kind of framework, which I always thought was sort of like, should Liechtenstein destroy the Soviet Union? I mean, it just it's, it's not a it's not a thing. Right. And, and I don't say that to be cruel because like I, I I'm with them. I was with them on a lot of these points. It just like. I had these debates with them, with them and this whole sort of like, should we burn it all down argument begged the question of whether or not we had any matches or any ability to do any of that kind of stuff. And, um, but their framework seems to have gone very far in that direction. Um, pox on all their houses and right. No, even to the extent that they leaned Haley, they were not invested in her candidacy. Whereas other, other people were, an, an R. I shouldn't. It's not over. She can win New Hampshire. Yeah, right. Exactly. At, at a level of broad generalization, uh, without getting into specific writers and whatnot, I, I think one thing, the way you divide the sociology between DeSantis and, and Haley people, I think is on in our profession, in our in our milieu, um, as we take a tour de horizon of our profession you've really been hey you've been <laughs> hanging out in paris a lot i can it's really it really shows jonah we oui. um so no i think that uh one way to think about it one way i think about it in my head is i would be totally happy to have ron DeSantis as the nominee instead of donald trump right like that's not a hard thing i think his presidency i, I think he's very wrong on the ukraine stuff and i think his answers on the ukraine stuff are very badly reasoned but I also don't think that that's more as, as authentically him as he sounds uh, in in real life. I think there's a lot of posing going on there. But regardless, that doesn't matter. I think for the most part, he's a directionally, he's a conservative guy. I don't like what he did with Disney. There's some things I, you know, I disagree with. But um, I think the difference sociologically at the 30,000 foot level is the people like DeSantis are conservatism first, fixed conservatism first secures conservatism's victories first, build the conservative coalition first, the Republican Party will follow. And the way I would characterize sort of my views is, is we're not going to fix the problems with conservatism until we fix the problem with the weakness of the Republican Party. The whole point of, like, you know, and I have full disclosures, I like Nikki, I know Nikki, my wife worked for Nikki, they have nothing to do with her campaign, I have major criticisms of lots of things she's done, but she is the kind of candidate that actually can put together a winning presidential coalition of your, right? That is, she puts together a bunch of people. She has enough of the base, but not a lot of it. She could use more college-educated Republicans. Uh, she's appealing across the aisle. And, and so for me, the appeal of her is that she is the kind of candidate you need if you're going to have the re a Republican Party that actually wants to start behaving like a party. Forget the ideology for a second, but to be a winning coalition party, a party that is aiming to get 55, 60% of the vote in a presidential election, rather than a party that relies, that thinks, oh, if we just poke with cattle prods our base one more time, 
we can win basically with just the base. And, you know, that's the Jeff Rowe, Ted Cruz model. That is the model of Donald Trump. And that is a guaranteed 45% coalition that maybe can get to 48%. And so I think one of the reasons why the DeSantis and Haley people kind of talk past each other is that, you know, people like my, our friend Michael Brennan Doherty, he's all about the issues, right? Taking on this fight, taking on that fight, taking on DEI and, and, and foreign policy and the neocons and all that kind of stuff. And I have my disagreements with Michael on that kind of thing. But at the same time, we probably agree on far more than we disagree about. But I think that the, the way we fix the problems in our politics are by having strong parties again and having parties that want to win a majority of the public. And that's not the primary consideration, nor should it be necessarily for like National Review crowd, right? National Review is about the conservative movement. That's why I love the place. But I think that the problems we face in our politics have to do with the utter institutional decrepitude, one might even say decadence, of the political parties. And um, uh, anyway, that's what I think the conflict divisions here is. It's like... Right, but again, this is sort of... A, it's it's weird that DeSantis... I, I, I agree with you that that's sort of part of who ended up supporting DeSantis. So DeSantis was sort of one part populist infrastructure builders and another or would be infrastructure builders, people who, you know, agreed with you about the limits on Trump, but thought there was sort of a version of Trumpism that could be used to build to 53, 54 percent. And then, yeah, and then one part sort of um, kind of ideological movement conservatives, right, who who were sort of primarily devoted to a set of sort of traditional conservative issues. The thing with DeSantis was that his success in Florida seemed to show that he could be the guy who could hold it hold this together in and but also be a you know 53% 54% guy and i mean i guess you know you could say that well that was based on a set of issues that um that either went away in the case of covid um or shifted in the case of sort of wokeness and dei to a point where Voters were briefly very concerned about those things and then became less concerned as it seemed like the great awakening was ebbing. Right. And that so once those two those were two things that were sort of drawing people to DeSantis, people who are not sort of just conventional conservatives. Um, but then, yeah, as those issues diminished, he didn't have another pitch to those kind of voters. And so he fell back on the Jeff Rowe, Ted Cruz model. Um, I guess the question with Haley with Haley is what I mean, Haley's pitch in a general election right now. I mean, any Republicans pitch in a general election right now is that Joe Biden is too old and his economy has been bad and the world is a mess. Right. Um, and that may, that's clearly a pretty strong pitch, but it's not sort of the basis for a governing coalition. Um, it's not clear to me what the Haley, the strong Haley led party would would do itself. No, that's that's fair, you know, and I mean, the both the, the upside and downside of Nikki Haley is she's a good politician. And the problem is in this political moment um, and for a while now, being a politician is uh, being called a politician is sort of like being called a bureaucrat. Right. It's the negative connotation overpowers the positive side, even though we all want actually really good, competent bureaucrats. We should also want really good, competent politicians. And 
And so I agree. Like it's there be she's very much a generic Republican circa 2015 or 2014, let's say. Um, And I agree with you that DeSantis began making an argument that I've always agree with him on about this cultural losing stuff, Um, about this sort of, you know, um, not wanting to be a majority party, not trying to actually win. And he tried to lean into his winning in Florida stuff. My problem with that always was his personality never came across as like, he's the guy who turned Florida red. He benefited enormously from two really craptacular opponents in his elections. Um, and the, and this idea that he was getting all these things done, um, because he was such a competent politician, it's very easy to seem like a super competent politician when you have commanding majorities in your legislature and the mismatch between, I'm not saying he wasn't good at getting stuff done behind the scenes. And I always thought he was more of a wonk than people give him credit for, but he just didn't come across as a compelling, charismatic personality. And I wish that didn't matter, but it does. It appears to matter. Yes. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. It's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. But like, so getting back to this, I mean, I think, I think you're right. Like our, our friend uh, Ramesh Panuru had a good piece in the Washington Post, I think yesterday, talking about how unbelievably muddled the GOP is on policy stuff. And I think that any attempt to forge an ideological consensus that I would like or that you would like or that sincere Trumpist type populists would like or or hardcore neocon, whatever, doesn't really matter because there's just a fundamental incoherence 
in and a self the the amount of self contradiction in what Trump is in favor of has yielded a elect a Republican electorate that just doesn't pay attention to policy issues whatsoever. I mean, you have Trump basically throwing the pro life movement under the bus, and also forty years of without any planning of what to do post Roe, and so the anti Roe versus anti versus pro life factions, if you even want to call them those, are splintering apart. Trump's what's Trump's position on healthcare? What's Trump's position on on social security? I mean, you know, right. you, yeah, that's, these are these are empty empty questions, <laughs> right? Or or the, or the questions answer themselves, right? <laughs> and and so in that climate, I mean, it's fascinating to me and a little reassuring that during the debates, because Trump wasn't there, they were largely about policy stuff, sometimes small ball and petty and nasty policy stuff. But like DeSantis sounds pretty Reaganite. Nikki sounds pretty Reaganite. Vivek Ramaswamy sounds like he was invented in a German lab to drive me crazy. Um, <laughs> but everyone else, you are not, you are not a, a big Ramaswamy head. To say I'd loathe him, I, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of surprised. I really thought, yeah. I mean, no, no. I, I think, I think one thing you could say is that. So I, a long time ago, co-wrote a book with our mutual friend. Raihan Salam, right, about the Republican Party becoming a more working class political party. And the argument that we made then was that this would encourage and also require some sort of rethink of the Republican Party's economic policies. Um, and I think if you look at sort of what happened with Trump in 2016, the way that he ran the issue set, he ran on sort of, you know, trade, liberal promises on spending, that kind of stuff. Um, you could say that we were, you know, that sort of vindicated our argument, even if you didn't like anything Trump was proposing, even if you thought he was, you know, a horrible demagogue, it still seemed like what you would expect from a more working class conservatism was some kind of this kind of economic populism. I think what you're seeing in 2024 is more that a big chunk of working class conservatism is just people who don't pay close attention to politics, don't have strong views on economic issues, and don't, you know, don't don't sort of have a policy ask at all, right? So, or not a not a really specific one beyond promise to have a good economy. And so you have DeSantis and Haley sort of fighting over the share of the GOP electorate that cares about policy, right? And those people are still by and large more Reaganite. And then the rest, you know, the 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 rest of the party, including a lot of people Trump has brought into the party, are populist, but in a way that can be sort of totally substance free, or at least that Trump can win while being totally substance free. I don't know how this maps at all onto onto future debates. But I think the idea that you're necessarily going to get some kind of clash between a Jonah Goldberg Republicanism and a J.D. Vance Republicanism, you know, in some future primary, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's wrong um, or maybe it doesn't it doesn't happen in, a, in any kind of clear clash of policy visions way. Yeah, I, I just think it's absolutely impossible as long as Donald Trump is dominating the party. And this is something I think, look, there are a lot of people on the populist side, the conservative movement and the Republican party and all that, who got a lot of things right that I got wrong. 
But one thing I got right, and they all got wrong to one extent or another, was the idea that Donald Trump and Trumpism pose some really grand opportunity to craft an intellectually coherent um, post-liberal, post-fusionist policy agenda that, you know, that they could use Donald Trump the way the New Republic and Herbert Crowley and those guys used Woodrow Wilson. And uh, we saw a lot of people try really hard and one by one, they either had to cave to utter intellectual coherent, uh, incoherence and often corruption, or they had to say, all right, I am not hitching myself to Donald Trump anymore. Because there is no, there is no way to be a consistent, philosophically and policy consistent and actually defend everything that Donald Trump does. There's no safe harbor. The only way, the only safe harbor if you're going to be engaged in active sort of political stuff is to basically say, I trust Donald Trump's instincts. He is the leader. Uh, it's a kind of Americanized Fuhrer principle. He is infallible. And, um, and I accept all of the contradictions. And some people in the Claremonster world and elsewhere made that bargain and they're happy with it. I don't know if they're happy, but they've stuck to it. And then there are other people like uh, Julian Kreintz or whatever who just said, yeah, okay, I'm done being block and tackle for Donald Trump, but here are these ideas I still believe in. And I feel like the second is a more honorable and, and, and decent upholding of what it's supposed to be to be about, about public intellectual stuff um, than the former, but we see a lot more of the former. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is, I, I don't I, I agree with you that there has not been a successful grafting of any kind of post-fusionist ideology onto onto Trump. Um, and I don't think that people I, I think though the 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 vacuum that we're talking about is going to encourage new attempts. Like I, I don't think the attempt I, I don't think we've seen the end of the attempt to sort of pour wine into the teetotaler Donald Trump's wineskin, right? Because, I mean, you, part, of, part of what's weird about this moment, right, is that Trump is probably going to be the Republican nominee. I think that if the economy is pretty good for the next year, that Biden can win. But if I think if the election were held today, Donald Trump would be elected president again. And no one has any idea who would staff. I mean, I shouldn't say no idea who would staff his administration, right? Like, yeah, there's sort of a set of people from Stephen Miller on down who would who would be there in his administration, right? But like, who would be Trump's secretary of state? Who would be his secretary of defense? Who would be his attorney general? What would be Tom Fitton? What would right? What would what would he? <laughs> what would his allies in Congress present as like the second term? agenda. Trump has sort of made gestures, you know, here here and there, but he's but we we could have someone elected president whose platform is a vacuum, whose personnel is a mystery. Um and I think that is actually going to encourage not just, you know, would be post liberals, but a lot of different people. Um well include I'm actually curious what you think about this. Like as uh, you don't have to sort of speculate too personally, but do you think that Nikki Haley would accept the vice presidential nomination if offered? I can't rule it out. It would it would 
profoundly disappoint me. Um, but I can't roll it out. And one, but one reason, one reason would be precisely this, right? That if you're sure. if you're Nikki Haley, Trump, you know, again, assuming that there is not going to be a you know a dictatorship and a third term and all these things, Donald Trump will be a lame duck very quickly <laughs> upon entering the White House. Mm-hmm. Someone has to run. Someone has to run his White House. Someone has to run his policy agenda. I'm sure a lot of people of all kinds of different stripes would talk themselves into trying to fill that role. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I agree with you. This is one of my great frustrations with the sort of hardcore, never-Trump crowd on certain corners of the right and also vast swaths of the left. For years, they did nothing but defecate from a great height on John Kelly, Bill Barr, William Barr, um, all those guys who are in Trump's orbit um, in his cabinets. And it turns out that, like, they did yeoman service keeping, first of all, getting a lot of good things accomplished, but also keeping the republic on its rails. And they're now all lamenting how terrible a second Trump administration would be. And they're correct. But they get they say because they won't have those people around him. He won't have those people around him, those responsible circuit breakers around him. And you would think there'd be just a little more of a mea culpa saying, you know, we were probably too hard on John Kelly and and Mark Milley and all of these people who we said were aiding and abetting a dictator, because now we're complaining that when he gets this would-be dictator, when he gets reelected, won't have men of good conscience and caliber like that around him anymore. Um, I, I just that has always really bothered me. Well, there's been there's this I there's this idea, and you know, this is part of this ongoing debate about about you know, Trump and how to respond to him. But I think I think there's this idea that if just one more group of elites would condemn Trump a little more wholeheartedly, he would finally be defeated. Right. And that's the idea that motivates that that. kind of complaint about about like John Kelly, that if I want the donors just support Nikki. Right. You know, like the donors, you know, right. If only he had if only he had resigned in high dudgeon, you know, three weeks in and denounced Trump and said every bad thing Trump ever said that, you know, but I, I think we see Donald, <laughs> Donald Trump. I mean, I'm in the camp that does not think that, you know, January 6th is provides a constitutional justification to disqualify Donald Trump. But Donald Trump did, you know, stir up a mob <laughs> that stormed the Capitol. Right. And and he was, you know, condemned up and down by Republicans after that. And here we are, and he's at fifty-one percent over Joe Biden in in a poll. I I am I have no belief in the we just need more elites to act in certain ways theory of defeating of defeating Trump. Anyway, sorry. Well, let me let me let me let me because we will have so much time. You may even be in the cell next to mine um, to discuss, you know, the the wayward nature of the next Trump administration. And I do think that there is. The, a second Trump administration poses a much greater threat for the reasons we're discussing now than the first one, um, in part because the institutions like the Federalist Society are getting sidelined for you know lawyers who know what time it is and all that kind of garbage. And um, and Trump has now has a process about finding people who only who who whose response to him is that's a great idea, sir not to point out the problems and lots of bad things can happen in, with, with, with that kind of environment. But, um, let's go broader. Um, I've made a, 
incredibly witty and literary homage reference to your book Decadence um, earlier. And um, uh, and we're talking about elites. And I think you're absolutely right that there is this weird obsession that says if one more group of elites just stepped in and exerted the power we all know they have, that would fix everything, right? I mean, how many people I've heard from who say, why don't the donors just all rally around Nikki and make her the nominee? And they're giving up they're, they're, they're revealing their own assumptions about how our system works and think the donors can do that, right? But the donors don't have that kind of power in our system. Um, people will say, you know, I bring this up all the time on here. I, I've been asked, I used to get asked a bunch, why did the Republican Party let even let George Santos run? And the reason is because he filled out a form and showed up. And because there's no, there are no barriers to entry. And so I'm not going to do my whole weak parties thing again, all that kind of stuff. But um, as someone who comes from the populist, the the highbrow, Tony highbrow populist wing of the Republican Party or the conservative movement. There are, there are dozens of us. You have one of these heightened contradiction things of being a man of the people at the New York Times. Um, I'm just kind of curious, is how much of the problem do you think with the way our system is working um, how much of it doesn't stem from the fact that um, our elites are too are too weak, broadly speaking, or the elites that have power don't want to actually be responsible for the power that they wield? I mean, I think it's it flows from. I think there's a a there's sort of a moral critique, right, that you can lodge of how. Elites themselves approach their roles that our mutual friend Yuval Levin has written a lot about, right? This idea that there just aren't enough people who treat themselves as sort of servants of their own institution, whether it's, you know, the Senate or the courts or the bureaucracy or whatever. There are too many people who want to use those institutions as platforms for their own brands rather than as, yeah, as sort of institutions that are larger than themselves. Um, I think that critique is obviously, obviously correct, but it's sort of bound up in just this, you know, I mean, this is not just an American phenomenon, right? Like all over the world, um, all over the developed world, at least, there is profound disillusionment with elites and establishmentarians and governments and so on. And I think that is connected to the technological age that we live in, right? Um, maybe we've talked about this before, but Martin Martin Gurry's book, Revolt of the Public, I think, which is a, basically about how um, the digital age has sort of exposed institutions in this profound way, like people know too much about them. Um, and there's no, you know, there's sort of no room for, anything to happen behind the scenes. There is no there is no behind the scenes, right? It's all transparency and institutions really can't, you know, they, they can't maintain public trust in a way if people are too aware of all the sort of human fallibility of what's going on inside them. That's, I think, you know, that's clearly part of what's going on. Um, I mean, I think the world would look different if our elites specifically had made better choices around a variety of different issues. I think American, but especially European elites have mishandled 
politics of immigration in profound ways that are just sort of only going <laughs> only going to get worse because of demographic trends over the next century. Um, I think, you know, the U.S. foreign policy has been deeply unsuccessful in the last 20 years in ways that also, you know, I mean, one problem for Nikki Haley, right, is that she, what, whatever, wherever you stand on the specific question of aid to Ukraine, she represents a kind of hawkish republicanism that is seen as having a, a record of failure in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? So that's that's out there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I think we sit at sort of the intersection of some actual policy failures that can be laid at the door of elites and a kind of technological media environment that just makes it really hard to sort of run elite institutions and hold and hold the public trust for any for any length of time. And I don't know what could happen. I mean, you know, I, I don't know what could happen to make that situation better. It would be good to have a very successful and popular president for a while. <laughs> that, would, that would probably be helpful. Right. And maybe this is this is sort of maybe part of your case for Haley, that if you if you got Haley in the Oval Office, you know, maybe she could be very popular and sort of institutionally, the Republican Party could recover under her leadership. I would say that that a lot of DeSantis's supporters hope for that from him, too. Um, so good government from somebody would help. Um, but also that, you know, the the world's not in a great state <laughs> at the moment. Right. Um, you know, I think American power worldwide is under incredible stress. I'm not particularly optimistic about the next five years globally. That's not going to be good for sort of elite credibility if the U.S. is seen as sort of losing ground around the world. I mean, I, I, I think on, on the particular question of this idea of decadence, that's like my, my book and sort of the thing I've written about. I mean, it, it seems like since, since COVID, if you're looking for sort of optimistic things, right, you could say that, well, since COVID, we've seen some sort of technological, some hopeful technological acceleration, right, some biomedical progress, um, you know, depending on what you think about what AI might do to the world, maybe you're optimist, one can be optimistic about that. Our, our you know, Jim Pathakoukas, for instance, is, you know, if you want a sort of optimistic libertarian vision of the future, you can go read his stuff. Um, but the social side of things just seems to be, COVID just seems to have delivered its own blow. Like, I'm, like birth rates are down everywhere all around the world since since covid right it's just like and we're just headed we're headed sort of into this really grim demographic spiral um all over the world and i don't know what exactly elites can do about that not what they've been doing but i i don't know what the right thing is to do in an environment where you have a lot of really wealthy societies growing old very quickly, dealing with big mass migration pressures, even as declining population means that growth is just going to slow down all over the world. Again, unless we get big technological breakthroughs in the near term. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to chumbacasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's very difficult to come up with a, you know, we both know people. You're probably one of them who've been yearning for another great awakening for a while. Um, and at least the great awakening, you can see how it happens. There have been what, four of them. Um, um, and the problem with the great awakening model is that that's not, a, I, well, I think it would be good if more people were religious, right? For all sorts of reasons. I think the real social movement we need is one that is very difficult to come up with slogans to get a lot of people behind, you know, where the slogans would be something like, everyone stay in your lanes, which is just not really doesn't thrill people's hearts. But I think the fundamental problem with our institutions, and so just to start, I think institutions are kind of like the role that trees play in ecosystems, right? Their roots keep the soil from just being washed away after a big rain. They create sub ecosystems that people can live in or that animals and creatures biomes can thrive in. Um, they lend themselves to all sorts of biodiversity and that's what old institutions are supposed to do in a healthy society is sink roots in that create these niches for weirdness to thrive within them and the problem with a lot of our institutions today is that they're so overwhelmingly taken over by a strand of leftist thought that that does not want to give up their their transgressive, their radical, um, their revolutionary self-conceptions. And so they use these institutions. I mean, was it that uh, Iowa Hawk had this great summation of this? This is the way the left, what the left does. It, it takes a venerable institution, kills it, skins it, and then wears its mask around, <laughs> you know, destroying it and uh, destroying its reputation. And so like the Gramscian march through the institutions happened and, but none of these people wanted to sort of actually get behind a desk and do the actual job of the institution. They wanted to use the institution to further the revolution as it were. And that's what has given America what I consider to have is an autoimmune disease where when you have an autoimmune disease, your body attacks healthy organs as if they're invaders and treats it as of, as if they're infections. And when you, when you see that, when you see mobs knocking over statues of abolitionists because they were racist, you realize that the autoimmune disease has gone too far, right? When you see that the right, no, no, and they, right, no, this is and this is this is part of part of the problem for the kind of you know elite institutions contra Trumpism perspective, right? Is that you know there is there is no legitimacy that institutions that have become ideologically radicalized can wield against 
like Harvard has no legitimacy to wield against populism, right? Like e- e- even independent, <laughs> independent of its president's sort of plagiarism, right? Like everyone understands that elite American educational institutions are deeply, deeply politicized. We observed during COVID that public health institutions are or can be under the right constraints, deeply politicized, right? And yes, all all of that means that there is no sort of lever to pull against populist critique because, you know, the populists may be wrong about a thousand specific details, but they are in fact right that many of these institutions are not worthy of deference and trust. Look, obviously, I agree with that. That was sort of, that's part of my point. And I think that the surest way either party could become a majority party is if a bunch of mayors of one party or the other decided that they were going to be, they could be progressive, not progressive about all sorts of things, but like, stop carjacking, um, fight crime, do something about zoning and housing, right? Do actual, pro- solve actual problems, sort of of the sort a young vibrant, uh, hirsute-domed uh, Ross Douthat wrote about, you know, 15 years ago about... Um, Long ago and far away. Solving people's actual problems. And and so I, I think that... I mean, I'm kind of curious what you think about this because I've, for complicated reasons we don't have to get into, uh, I've always rejected what people call horseshoe theory because of its roots in this argument about fascism and communism that I think everybody got wrong. Um, you may recall I wrote something about that at a time, once upon a time, but I've come to embrace horseshoe theory domestically because what, the stuff you're talking about, about the populists and how Harvard and those institutions have no credibility, forget legitimacy, which I think is a little more loaded, have no credibility with, with outside of people who already agree with them. I agree with that entirely, and that's a huge problem. The same phenomenon of wanting to politicize and uh, and and sort of nightstick every institution on the right into partisan political conformity is happening as well. The problem is, is like there's just so few conservative institutions <laughs> that I, we both know the names of everybody at them, you know. Um, but that's a similar phenomenon that's happening on the right, which is like you have to fall in line for MAGA. We're now seeing the Hugh Hewitt types and these guys start talking about how, you know, you have to, you, you can't choose, you either choose uh, Joe Biden shredding the Constitution, as I saw Matt Schlapp say this morning, um, or uh, you choose a great and glorious dear leader. And um, that same sort of, that's, I think, the sort of, this thing that you're right about that's happening everywhere around the world. Populists, I'm a big Julian Benda guy the populists are all, the masses are all driving the cars of how elites behave and elites are, are, are following suit. And it's not a right left thing anymore. It is just simply, um, there go the people I must go with them for I am their leader kind of thing. Right. Although there is, I mean, if you look at Europe, right, like there's truth to that, but then there's also a way in which populism in power gets bracket bracket the donald trump experience right and just look at like georgia maloney in mm-hmm. in italy for instance or to some extent boris johnson in the uk right that 
there is a sort of and you could even say this about i think trump's first terms and i'm so i'm not i'm not even bracketing him completely right like there is a way in which sort of yes politicians follow their voters in this sort of performative way um but then on substance like you know the the populists get into power and don't exactly know what to do right <laughs> and a lot of the time they end up right. defaulting back to establishment conventional wisdom so th- so the establishment has this certain weird resilience notwithstanding the fact that both side both ends of the voting public um dislike it and find it and find it sort of discreditable right and yet, and yet nonetheless it it endures right it's this peculiar thing like georgia maloney you know is is not governing that differently from how a you know, a, a pre Silvio Berlusconi right of center Italian politician would have governed. She doesn't know what to do in the context of the EU framework and the context of global refugee and human rights law. She doesn't know what to do about immigration, right? She doesn't know what to do about the collapsing birth rate in Italy. She's against it, but she doesn't know what to do about it, right? Um, so there's that, that problem is woven in too, right? It's not just that sort of everything is becoming so woke or populist it's that you know actual governance is just sort of you know stuck it doesn't know it doesn't know how to solve the problems it's confronted with yeah which is part of my argument about why it would be good to have an actual politician right i mean say put it this way like i i think you might recall i had my difficult my my objections to bill clinton but he was a good politician right and and there's something to be said. I mean, again, I increasingly find, and I don't want to make it like this sort of hard rule because hard rules get you into trouble. But I often have this instinct of when people say X is the problem, increasingly I find that it's not X is the problem, right? It's like people say, oh, um, the elites are too powerful. No, I think the elites are too weak. Oh, parties are too powerful. No, I think parties are too weak. Um Oh, there isn't enough transparency. No, there's in fact way too much transparency. Oh, we need more democracy. No, actually, we need less democracy. Um, I mean, we need democracy for the things that democracy is for, but not for everything. We don't democrat. We're democratizing too many institutions. Um, this idea that the big problem facing America right now is uh, too much censorship of free speech—it's true for some institutions, but on the whole, speech has never been freer. And, um, and so on a whole bunch of fronts, people are, it's part of, I think it's part of this sort of Rousseauian cult of authenticity where you don't want people to actually be inauthentic when they take over an institution. You want them, everyone to be themselves, be true to themselves. Well, look, Trump is so authentic to himself. He's an authentic jackass. But like, so the Eisenhower played a role. Bill Clinton played a role. FDR, to a certain extent, played a role. I mean, he, he, it helped for him that he was, that he has these super majorities in the House and the Senate, so he got a lot of things done. Um, but, like, the idea that you should play a role for the public is kind of lost in all of this search for authenticity. And good politicians know how to tell, how to steer disparate coalitions towards positive ends. 
And this is not a brief necessary for Nikki Haley, right? I'm not, that's not the context I'm talking about this in. Good politicians know what their job description is and they do it. And we live in this pop, the populist moment, which is, exists on both the left and the right, wants everyone to be a rebel and a hero rather than a responsible steward and, and, a, and someone who governs. And I think that's sort of the problem and telling people, Hey, you're going to have to get someone who you, you, who you're not going to, you know, make a shrine to in your basement, you know, apartment. Um, he's going to piss you off sometimes, but he's going to get important things done and he's going to keep the country sort of together and not treat half the country as if they're evil, which is what both parties do now. Yeah. I mean, I, if I could just argue with one piece of that, right. I, I, th I, 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 I agree with the political analysis 100%. I think you want, you want, you absolutely want politicians who are capable of, as we were talking about before, winning actual majority coalitions. I think those are essential to governing. I think the American system depends on them, that part of the derangement in our politics is our system is just not set up to deal with sort of 48 to 48 ties all the time. Um, and yeah, and I think it's it's absolutely the case that we would be better off with stronger institutions in many in many different aspects of our common life. I don't I don't think you can say we would be better off with more powerful elites. And I know that's not exactly what you're saying, but until you have some idea, some clear idea of how are those elites actually going to master the moment? Right. And so let, let's say you put Nikki Haley in the White House. Right. You, you've, you've done it. She's won, you know, 53 percent of the vote. She's she's a good politician. I agree with you. She wins over a bunch of voters who don't normally vote Republican. OK, expands the Republican majority in the House and, and takes the Senate. These yeah. are these are good things. What what is the elite vision for how you handle what is the sort of elite center right um, vision for how you handle America's overlapping challenges, right? Like what right now, like in foreign policy, the United States is under strain from rivals and enemies in the Middle East, um, in, you know, in, in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, China and Taiwan, potentially North Korea, right? And and the U.S. is just we're just not in the place we were when Bill Clinton was president. And he was very successful in part because we were <laughs> we were in a really, really strong position. Right. And so when I look at like the sort of, you know, the Republican foreign policy, the elite Republican foreign policy vision that presumably Nikki Haley would embody, it seems to be like caught in a time warp where it's like, well, we're going to stand up to Putin and we're going to stand up to the mullahs. And we're going to stand up to North Korea and we're going to stand up to China. And the U.S., we're in a bad strategic position at the moment compared to where we were 20 years ago. You have to have some sort of Nixonian like I, and I, I'm not saying exactly what 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 the strategy should be, but some sort of Nixonian realism about, you know, who you're going to play off against each other, which bad guys you're going to support, which theaters you're going to, you know, sort of seek an uncomfortable peace in all of that right and maybe in office nikki haley would come up with that strategy but i don't think there's some like ready-made you know if we just if we just got sort of you know 
Mitt, Mitt Romney and Elliot Abrams or Elliot Cohen, maybe not Elliot Abrams, Elliot Cohen, right? You know, some some group of sort of 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 sort of Ukraine hawk Republicans together that they would have a strategy to deal with this landscape. I don't have any confidence that that they have a strategy that sort of the Haley part of the party has a strategy. And that's just that's one example. I, I would say something similar about immigration, a- economic policy and so on. I don't think I don't think elites have a strategy at the moment. And I'm not saying I know what the strategy should be, but I'm just saying like, I I don't, I don't. Yeah. So not to give offense, but a close one might even say Straussian reading of your last statement, uh, which I agree with in large part um, is you're, you're sort of switching horses back and forth between my point about elites and your concerns and problems with the sort of Haley wing of the Republican Party. Because I could do the exact same thing that you did about Ron DeSantis and J.D. Vance, right? That they don't know what they would do either. I mean, Ron DeSantis is talking about how we're going to shoot people trying to come into the country. Um, We're talking about, we got people in that wing talking about how we're going to uh, use the military against, you know, we don't want any more forever wars, but we're actually going to make the drug war a hot war in Mexico and Colombia. Um, I'm not saying that we shouldn't necessarily use military force, but it's a lot of red mate, boob bait, um, uh, pandering to audiences that want to hear this stuff. The way they talk about fentanyl, fentanyl's a huge friggin' problem. Most fentanyl is not brought in by these people swarming the border. It's brought in through checkpoints. Um, but that runs inconvenient. Vivek Ramaswamy is talking about using the military at the northern border. Um, I mean, it is incoherence, Fox News audience pandering all over the place in 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 the anti-Haley side as well. And so I agree with you entirely. People should figure this f- stuff friggin' out. I agree with that entirely. But this idea that somehow the elites that you want to be, that you want to re- supplant, um, in the sort of Republican conservative firmament with more grounded populist type elites, uh, they haven't figured a lot of this stuff out because these problems are hard, but neither have the people that you'd like to replace them with. And, um, and we can't have a debate about what that should look like, what that, what that new consensus should be. So long as Donald Trump is saying that he would end the Ukraine Russia war in 24 hours, right? Because, Anybody who actually wants to talk about the hard questions and the details and the second order and third order steps required to solve some of these problems is just going to get picked off by some talk radio schmo or cable news host or by Donald Trump for trying to make this sound harder than it needs to be. Because that's the problem. And this is the thing I've always thought you guys were wrong about, about populism, is that you're making an elitist argument for populism, and that's fine, but the elites still need to be the ones to figure out what's good for the populace, for the populi. And um, the, the problem is, is that in politics, if you say you're going to ride populist in, uh, into power, and you're not incredibly disciplined and incredibly self-aware of what you're doing, what you're end up going to end up doing is catering to the crowd rather than using the crowd towards productive ends. And that's what Bernie Sanders' you know, vision is. That's what Donald Trump's vision is. That's what a huge, that's what Heritage Foundation is becoming. It's, it's, it's 
focus grouping what the MAGA people want to hear, what the populists want to hear, and delivering it rather than actually thinking through what you guys were trying to do with the reform conservatism stuff, which was responsible and coherent and a way to, to forestall populist overreach rather than by actually helping real people. And instead, what we have now is a politics of utter pandering to populist mob sentiment. sentiment. And um, I'm enough of a self-aware elitist to say, I don't like crowds. I don't like mobs. I don't like telling people that all the problems that we have in the world are really easy if we just get the right people in to fix them. And that's the sort of rhetoric of our politics today. But weren't you just defending the idea that people need to be good at politics and isn't part of being... This is not a brief for Ron DeSantis, who clearly is not that good at politics, right? We can we can say that. Um, but surely a successful politician has to figure out some kind of balance here, right? Where, I mean, Clinton, look, Clinton was actually quite good at figuring out how to blend a certain degree of pandering with a certain degree of policy nuance, wrapping the two together. Mm -hmm. And voters really liked that. I don't know if there are enough, as I said earlier, I'm skeptical that there are tons and tons of voters in the Republican coalition who who want that. And I am I am deeply. Yeah, I, I don't um, I don't I don't have a plan Jonah, for fixing the situation. I'm just very I'm just very doubtful of the the current state of, um, you know, I, I'm doubtful about the current state of elite conventional wisdom. That's that's all. I'm not saying, look, I do think I'll probably write a piece about this at some point. I do think I would be more comfortable with a Ron DeSantis foreign policy than a Nikki Haley foreign policy, mostly because I feel like DeSantis has sent signals that he has, you know, that he wants to think more about trade-offs in foreign policy than Haley has done. But I agree with you that that, that those sort of trade-off sort of realist signals are wrapped together with a bunch of posturing about what we're going to do with Mexico that, you know, if actualized would be its own kind of disaster. So I, I agree. I, I don't think... Yeah, no, that, that's all fair. And again, I don't... I, 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 I think a Ron DeSantis presidency, I think he would, if he were consistent with some of the things he says, I think there's a unfortunate risk that he would um, completely screw Ukraine, which I think would be very bad. But that's a discrete policy thing. Generally speaking, I wouldn't catastrophize a DeSantis foreign policy. I mean, there was more continuity between Obama's foreign policy and Bush's foreign policy than people realize. And there was more continuity between Obama's foreign policy and Trump's foreign policy for the sort of the same reasons that you're getting at with Georgia Maloney. It's like it turns out that once you're behind the desk, the range of options you have to do stuff is fairly constrained and the solutions are fairly limited and you end up going in generally the same sort of direction. I, I mean, I think the realists are full of crap, but this idea that sort of Amer that nations follow their interests to a certain extent, regardless of who's in charge, there's some merit to that. Obviously, there's some explanatory power. And so I agree with you in the sense that I do. I wouldn't want just elites to be more powerful. I would not want to give Claudine Gay from six months ago a lot more power, right? I would not want to give um, the Ford Foundation and these places a lot more power. But part of my point is, is that the elites, not only we need more powerful elites, but we also need elites with a much more robust sense 
of responsibility about their own institutions and what they're there for. And you can't have one without the other. And so that's where I'm sympathetic to the populists. If that, if, if the people running a lot of these institutions are going to abuse their power, they should be thrown out. But I don't think that they should be replaced with people of populist sensibilities. I think they should be replaced with as many clones of Yuval Levin as we can come up with, right? People who actually care about the actual institutions that they're, that, and the job, you know, they should be able to answer the question from office space, what would you say you do here? And I, I, I don't remember about like 10 years ago under Obama, the head of NASA was asked what his top priority was. And it was all about like, it wasn't DEI, but it was sort of like, was you it know, climate change about racial or was it racial climate change racial and like job. racial inclusion or something yeah. like that. And it's like, no, your, your job is to put rockets in space. And, um, that's the sort of what I'm getting at, but I agree with you. There's not a consensus on the, on the old Reaganite, right. And there's not a consensus. Uh, but I also don't think there's a consensus on the DeSantis side either. And we could get to one that wouldn't make you entirely happy or me entirely happy if Donald Trump wasn't soaking up all of the oxygen and all of the seriousness out of out of Republican politics. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I think you're making a pretty strong case for, you know, general pessimism. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, I feel like, you know, I feel like I had my phase as a pundit and hack writer and policy analyst where I thought I was part of a project to, you know, build a worldview that could be usefully adopted by some future Republican, administ Republican administration. Um, and that phase sort of ran from 2006 to 2016. And then in the Trump presidency, there were a bunch of sort of bright young populists who came in and said, you know, things that I agreed with, right, that we're going to have, you know, well, now, now we're going to, you know, now we're going to build the sort of working class Republican coalition, you know, that that you wanted originally, Ross. And my response to them was often a sort of like dour, a dour skepticism about their plans for, you know, realignment and transformation. Right. Um, and I think some of those people have come around to to more skepticism in the last in the last few years. Um, but I, yeah, I do. I do not currently see a path beyond the sudden emergence of some unexpected political talent, which I think neither DeSantis nor Haley are on the right, um, towards radically transforming the situation for the better. Um, I think that events that I think American politics in general is likely to be sort of a prisoner of unfortunate events in the near term. Um, and I don't think, I think grand plans of all kinds are going to be defeated by that reality, no matter who is elected president this year. So how's that? How's that for pep, pep and optimism? So buy gold. Um, no, don't buy. I, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well, you know, we have, we have Nick Catogio on staff now. So like, that's the pure uncut, uncut pessimism. I usually don't have to outsource my Eeyore fix to you, but like, you know, there we are. Ross Douthat, thank you so much for doing this. I know you got to run. Um, always great to have you. I hope you'll come back because um, I, I, I did want to talk to you about UFOs, but I, you know, next another time. I, I I will come back and talk about UFOs, Jonah. I I promise when you're ready, when you're prepared. Okay, when, I, when my, my loins are sufficiently girded right. against probing and everything else.
Uh, Ross Douthat, uh, thanks again for coming. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Jonah. It was fun. Okay, so Ross has left the studio, and it was uh, it was great to talk to him. I I don't know if there if it sounded like there was too much subtext to our conversation, or if there was too much subtext to our conversation. This is the this is the the the, the problem with um sort of esoteric conservative uh, disputes with with people you're friends with is that the um some of the disagreements are very elusive, which can make them elusive to the listeners. So. Uh, maybe on the uh, solo, I will e- explicate on some of this stuff. But it's always great to talk to Ross, and um, it's great to have him. And I do apologize because he, he did want to talk about UFO stuff, which he has strong views on. And I wanted to get at the uh, more stuff on the Catholic Church, which he has also has strong views on. But that'll have to wait for another day. I have to um, get packed, and I'm heading to New Hampshire, although my... Jet blue, jet blue flight keeps getting uh, delayed over and over and over again. Um, so we'll see what happens on that front. We'll see about all sorts of things. So with that, thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.